Hello and welcome to the Weekly Investor Insights Call. Throughout this, all participants will be in Snowy mode and today I'm pleased to present Gavin Ralston and Alistair Baker. Please begin. Hello and welcome from me to this week's call, however and wherever you're listening to us. This is Gavin Ralston and I'm talking today to Alistair Baker from Multi-Asset. Alistair, a pleasure to have you back with us. We try to time the multi-asset conversations to follow the monthly GAC meeting, the Global Asset Allocation Committee. That meeting took place last week, so Alistair will be able to share the discussion that took place with his colleagues and the decisions that resulted. In terms of market uh, activity, uh, it's been another good week for risk assets. Uh, so if you look at uh, year-to-date returns, U.S. equities are now up 10.5%, Chinese equities up 14.5%, the Eurostoxx 8 and the VIX index is back to 15 So as Keith Wade said a couple of weeks ago, we've had pretty much a full year's return in the first six weeks of 2019. And there's a paradox here because um, most of the fundamental news in the recent past has been a weaker growth. We had fourth quarter GDP numbers last week from Germany and Japan. The best that optimists could say was that both economies had avoided a recession. And then we had very weak retail sales and industrial production uh, in the US. And bear in mind also the comments from a more micro perspective that Frank Thorman made last week when he talked about earnings expectations in the US this year dropping fast and and the, the probability that first quarter earnings growth will now be negative. And in fact, investors don't seem to be sucked in to the rally. Uh, If you look at industry mutual fund data, uh, investors were sellers of equities and other risk assets in December and have continued to sell in the month of January. Nonetheless, the top three assets this year have been very consistent with this very high level of risk appetite. The top three assets are crude oil, uh, smaller companies in the U.S. and Brazilian equities. Uh, The only positives in the very recent past is that, that there are some signs that were moving towards uh, a resolution of the trade dispute uh, between the US and China. Bear in mind that uh, March the 1st is the date at which US tariffs on imports from China are due to rise from 10% to 25%, and that's only 10 days away. But otherwise, market expectations now seem to be for a synchronized global slowdown, and in fact, deepening in 2020. So, Alistair, before we come on to the discussions at last week's GAC, um, explain to us why risk assets have performed so well this year when most of the growth news has been weak. I think when you think about markets, while growth are important for things like earnings, etc., what is important is what central banks are doing because they can take and add liquidity into markets which can support or depress asset prices. What we saw over the course of 2018 was a situation where growth in the U.S. was okay, uh, but the central bank was withdrawing liquidity, and growth was pretty weak in the rest of the world, and that withdrawal of liquidity from the Federal Reserve also spilled over into weak performance of assets really outside the U.S. until the fourth quarter. What we really saw after December um, Federal Reserve meeting was the Federal Reserve go into reverse gear, having said that they were on a preset course, uh, they've now moved to a stance where they are watching the market carefully and basically on hold. I think the market's taken great comfort in that, uh, given the fact that growth expectations continue to revise down. So that increased responsiveness to the Federal Reserve, the risk the market is perceiving, has supported assets and indeed allowed valuations to rise 
even in the face of slow. But I guess what, what's perhaps surprising is that that Fed announcement was three weeks ago, and markets have continued to show a lot of momentum. Yeah, and I think that the it takes a while for markets to process this information. I think you have had some good news on the trade wars, which is also helping with sentiment. But broadly, uh, we're at back at levels we saw um, at the end of November um, before we had that combination of slowing earnings growth and that December meeting the Federal Reserve where Powell said they were on a preset course. Now we have a situation where growth remains more lackluster, uh, but at least the Federal Reserve has acknowledged that and is no longer tightening liquidity. And I think that's the key thing for markets. What we've been watching quite carefully over the course of 2018 was the gap between the earnings yield in the U.S. and bond yields. And that was really narrowing, making bonds a much more attractive asset class relative to equities. With bond yields coming down, um, what we can see now is actually higher valuations can be supported uh, despite the weaker earnings growth. So let's, let's move on to the discussions you had last week at the Global Asset Allocation Committee. What was the, what was the flavor of your thinking going forward? I think that what we've seen is the views we sort of began to take into account in November and December of one of slower growth and supportive liquidity have played out um, to a large extent. So our positions in emerging markets performed well. And as you said, things like China are one of the top performing equity markets this year as that liquidity has come in and benefited emerging markets. But I don't think we want to get too carried away and remain of a more neutral stance on equities. What we do like doing is focusing continuously on generating income. So where we have begun to think about more carefully is allocating to areas like Euro investment grade. Well, on a headline basis, a yield of 1% might not sound too attractive. What you have to take into account with negative cash rates in Europe, actually, if you hedge your investment grade back to dollars, you're actually in a pickup of about 4.5%, which is not an attract which is quite an attractive return in what we think will still be a reasonably muted return environment from here onwards, but one where we think we can generate reasonable positive returns. So no dramatic changes to the overall shape of portfolios resulting from the meeting? No dramatic changes. I think that where we have moderated a little bit is where we think that the dollar weakness, which we position for, is probably played out to a large extent, but we don't think we're going to move into a strong dollar environment. So we've done a little bit around the edges uh, to reduce our dollar underweight, but nothing major around that. So one of continuation of slow growth, but supportive liquidity. And you made the point a moment ago about the valuations having become, valuations of equities having become a lot more attractive in December as markets fall. I remember Johanna talking on the call a month ago about tactically, you've been tactically buying US small companies and emerging markets. Has the valuation story now played out in the sense that the S&P 500 is back to where it was at the end of November before the really sharp falls? I think this is where we get a bit more nuanced. So I think within things like we're holding on to our emerging market exposure, we're holding on to the exposure built up in smaller companies. We're actually looking at buying some Japanese equities as well, because some of these laggards have not really caught up with the broader rally um, in U.S. equities. But I think these positions, particularly the ones around U.S. smaller companies in Japan, are there to, on a shorter term basis to re recognize that the fact they haven't caught up with the rest of the market. I think what we're not doing is getting materially overweight equities at these levels. Uh, we are continuing to have a neutral stance and focusing much more on generating an attractive income, um, particularly within emerging market bonds, local debt in particular, where some of the higher risk emerging market currencies, you can get yields in the order of 8%, which is pretty attractive. And does that argument also apply, apply to corporate high yields? 
So corporate high yield, what we did do was add things like U.S. high yield in January. So we decided to take advantage of that wideness and spreads. And we continue to hold a reasonable weight there. So we like that income-bearing properties over perhaps, um, you know, the hope of higher earnings where we're seeing them const constantly downgraded. I think on the earnings point you raised, one of the things we did note last, um, last week was actually the global earnings revision ratio has stabilized. It has been collapsing. Um, really since November, but we've just seen a bottoming. Now, that doesn't mean we've seen material upgrades, but at least we're now beginning to see um, a stabilization of the downgrades. And coming back to the influence of central banks, Keith's view, I think, is that there'll be one further quarter point rise in U.S. interest rates in the second quarter. I think he's he's looking at a rebound in U.S. activity in the second quarter. Is, is that going to be enough to destabilize markets? Does that influence your um, position? I think we, we understand Keith's view and respect that view in terms of the fact that mm -hmm. quarter point rate hike. But actually, if you press Keith in that view, he says the risks are probably to the downside in terms of that rate hike going through. Our concern would be that in the event of a quarter point rate hike, the market would be pretty concerned because it would indicate the Federal Reserve has moved back to a tightening of liquidity. And that would really, we think, actually cause long-end bonds to rally um, and actually um, put some pressure on equities as people continue to think the Federal Reserve will begin to withdraw liquidity again. Now, I would caveat that on the point that if we do see a pickup in European growth, emerging market growth, and U.S. growth, i.e. a synchronized uptick in global growth, the Federal Reserve could get a rate hike done without causing major issues to market, but that really isn't our base case view. And there's no sign of that, quite the reverse. And there is no sign of that and quite the reverse. So therefore, while I think for our, us, a quarter point raise in June with the Federal Reserve would actually be a negative signal uh, for us and markets. Hmm. The other thing the Fed's been talking about a lot has been managing its balance sheet. Can you just talk us through the implications that that has for markets? Yes, the, the Federal Reserve has been doing what's known as QT, which is rolling off um, the, the bond purchases did and actually selling, um, well, not actually selling into the market, but when the maturity of the bonds they hold has come up, they haven't reinvested that capital. So effectively, they've been a net supplier of government bonds and also asset-backed securities into the market. Now, what the Federal Reserve has been trying to do is say, this is just a technical measure. It's just us managing our balance sheet down. The market's been more focused on this than the Federal Reserve would perhaps like. Um, and as a result, the comments by Powell in December uh, that it was on a preset course was actually one of the one of the things that really caused the markets to correct more meaningfully during that month. What they've done now is row back on that and actually said, look, we're nearing the end of our roll-off program and actually we're going to stabilize the balance sheet at quite a high level. What that means is the fact that that upward pressure on yields that's been created by the roll-off from government bonds will begin to subside, and that's how the market's thinking about it. While the Federal Reserve estimates the impact of QT is less than a 25 basis point rate rise, I think the market is more sensitive to it, given the impact QE had on pushing asset prices up. Therefore, they, they extrapolate that the impact of QT will be to push asset prices down. So that pause is part of a mix of policies that were acknowledged in January, namely that they're not on a preset course and they're sensitive to the market's concerns around their balance sheet, um, which really helped support risk assets um, for the rest of the year. So the, the Fed's balance sheet might be permanently at very high levels? Yeah, so they're talking now about potentially ending it towards the end of this year and the start of next year, rather than one where they were trying to manage it down. So it may sort of settle around in order of about two to two and a half trillion dollars of assets. Um, which means they'll begin to slow the pace at which they um, allow bonds to mature. 
I think that also needs to be set in the context of what is now quite large fiscal deficits in the U.S. So the impact of the tax cut last year and the impact of the fiscal stimulus that was pushed through was actually the issuance of Treasuries did increase quite meaningfully and is forecast to increase quite meaningfully. Indeed, there was a report um, from one of the congressional committees saying over a 10-year time horizon, we're not quite sure who's going to buy all this debt. So the point is the fact the Federal Reserve no longer also increasing supply into the market uh, also reduces one of the concerns around that larger fiscal deficit that the U.S. is running. Can we talk about emerging markets? Um, big disappointment in 2018, um, but significant recovery since the beginning of this year, thanks partly to the weaker dollar. Uh, wh where do you stand on both emerging markets equities and emerging markets debt? So we like both the debt and the equity. And I think the debt is one where we continue to see a situation where, particularly in the higher yielding currencies and the higher yielding debt markets, you can get a nice return of about 8%. And what we're seeing now is a situation where central banks are actually continuing to talk about cutting rates. Whereas last year, as a result of the pressure the Federal Reserve was exerting, many emerging market currencies had to tighten rates and slow growth. This year, with the Federal Reserve stepping back, uh, we're seeing a situation where we're beginning to see rate cuts uh, in certain emerging markets and indeed discussions about them, which generally is a situation which is supportive for that carry and also the performance of the bonds. It's a similar story um, for emerging market equities, slightly different mix um, in terms of the exposure, much more Asian-focused and Latin American-focused, but one where we think that, that that supportive liquidity will continue to cause emerging markets to be reasonably well-supportive. What we do need to keep an eye on, though, is that dollar dynamic. I think one of the risks we are particularly concerned about and what we saw last year the situation where the U.S. growth remained robust, but the rest of the world was weak. Now, some people put that at the, you know, the, the feet of the trade wars. But the data actually rolled over much, much earlier than when the trade war talk really picked up. So our biggest concern at the moment is actually a continuous slowdown in the rest of the world economy and the U.S. holding up well. So that will cause a strengthening of the dollar again, which will be very bad for emerging markets. So that's one of our key risk scenarios, monitoring that rest of the world growth stabilizes and the U.S. slows down a bit, but not too much. And Craig Botham's view on China is looking at his activity indicator that the economy is slowing down more decisively than the official data would suggest. Yeah, and I think that one of the key bits of information that came out um, early this week um, or late last week was actually the loan data from China. And actually, if you look at key, uh, Craig's indicators, what you do see is that year-on-year -year credit growth has now stabilized and actually accelerated for the first time in about 12 to 18 months which again just puts, puts further idea that central banks are moving into a more stimulative policy. I think what's really important though is to step back and say, you know, there's only so much stimulation central banks can do at this phase of the cycle. We're at low unemployment rates um, and therefore wage pressure is building. Therefore, while central banks can provide some level of support, what they can't do is materially push liquidity back into the economy. And that's really what we're seeing in China as well, stabilization in growth, but unlikely to see this repeated acceleration we saw in 2016 um, when they put some serious stimulus into that economy to stabilize after the devaluation of the yuan. So within equity markets, do you have any particular bias in terms of growth of value, large or small? We don't at the present, but what we are doing is becoming much more active in the way we invest within our multi-asset portfolios. For a long period of time, we were very happy just to own a large amount of exposure within the S&P 500, which is a very nice and diverse index, which has delivered from very strong returns relative to the rest of the world since the financial crisis. 
I think this idea that growth is going to be slower, but liquidity reasonably supportive, what we do think is it gives the opportunity for active managers to pick those companies which can best access what is quite low growth. So what we are making an allocation to is Alex Tedder's global equity portfolio. Uh, we've introduced things such as UK smaller companies um, and areas where we think there's an opportunity for active stock pickers uh, to really filter out where there is growth opportunities um, rather than perhaps a top-down allocation. Okay. Then looking at the other side of the portfolio is where you're looking to provide some sort of protection in the event of uh, less favorable circumstances. What, what assets are you currently using to play a defensive role in portfolios? So we really took the view in Q4 that duration was an asset class we wanted to own um, to stabilize the risk within our portfolios. And that's something that did play out reasonably well. And our view was effectively last year, Actually, duration wasn't much of a diversifier in Q1. Indeed, when equity markets sold off in February, bonds also sold off. Actually, double whammy in terms of the performance of your portfolio, which is very unusual. But with the downside, the downside risks now increasing to growth, inflation becoming less of a concern for central banks, we do think duration does provide a nice stabilizer within the portfolio. What we have been doing, though, is taking some profits on our U.S. duration, where we've got, obviously, um, the highest absolute yields, but ones now where they're actually pricing in some rate cuts into the market going forwards and rotating that into European bonds where there is still some rate hikes priced into the curve and actually the steepness of that curve makes them an attractive income-bearing assets. So that's European investment grade, not European we governments? We bought European investment grade. We have been rotating to Europe, German bonds as well, so hard German duration as well um, as a result of taking some profits from that U.S. axis where we've seen most of the rate hikes priced out. So even, even though yields on the German 10-year are pretty much zero, you still think it would, it would behave defensively? I think there's actually, if you like, the German Bund is actually a softer form of duration than U.S. 10 years. And let me just explain this briefly. In the U.S., cash rates are around 2.5%. The 10 years yielding 26 so your pickup with roll down the curve is around cash plus 20 basis points. In Germany, cash rates are at minus 80 basis points, minus 75 basis points, and the Bund's yielding 10 basis points. You're getting cash plus 90 um, on that investment. So in actual fact, the Bund's from a pure carry perspective are much more attractive in terms of the income. What the Treasury has going for it, though, is clearly that the Federal Reserve can cut 200 basis points reasonably meaningfully, whereas the, the ECB is pretty much locked at zero already. So it's now a question of, do you think there will be more rate cuts from the Federal Reserve, so actual rate cuts, or would you rather have that more attractive carry on the German Bund? At the moment, we're favoring that more attractive carry over further rate cuts being priced into the U.S. curve, because we don't think growth is necessarily going to be negative. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Alistair. Uh, we're almost out of time for this week. Uh, let me just pick up a couple of the points Alistair made. One was that multi-asset policy is not to get carried away with the strong performance of equities and other risk assets so far this year, to find value instead in areas like uh, European investment grade. Um, however, one of the points Alistair did make was that earnings revision rates have now stabilized, which may give some comfort uh, in the months to come. Uh, he also talked about the importance of central bank policy as an influence on markets, uh, both the Federal Reserve, but central banks elsewhere as well. Um, and then in terms of the defensive components of portfolios, uh, happy to use 
uh, duration as a stabilizer, uh, largely on the basis that the correlations between duration and risky assets uh, remain um, close to zero or negative. So as I say, that's all we have time for this week. Uh, thank you very much, Alistair, and thank you very much, all of you, for listening. This now concludes the call. Thank you all very much for attending. You can now disconnect your lines.